Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, we're pleased to have with us today Barbara Sugg, who is with the Southwest Power Pool as president and CEO. Hi, Barbara. Hello, Marty. How are you? Good. Uh, I want to talk to you uh, about a lot of things uh, and, and start out with the elephant in the room, which is the outage that happened in mid-February. Um, but to help our listeners, tell us a little bit about Southwest Power Pool as one of nine ISOs and RTOs charged with keeping uh, adequate transmission infrastructure in place and uh, keeping a healthy wholesale electric power market. Well, sure. Let me just start by expressing my appreciation for uh, this conversation today. I think it's a great opportunity to talk about Southwest Power Pool, and I'm, and I'm honored to be here. So Southwest Power Pool has been around since 1941. And yes, we do manage the transmission grid and operate a wholesale energy market across 14 states from the Canadian border in uh, northern North Dakota down to southeast New Mexico. Uh, we've been around since 1941 and have been um, providing reliability services and, and adding uh, different functions as the industry evolves over the decades and, and uh, have 104 members today with being anything from federal agencies to investor-owned utilities to independent power producers, uh, transmission developers, co-ops, munis, et cetera. So we've got a, quite a variety of membership. The um, 14 states you oversee and work with include Texas. So I right off the bat want to ask you, when you say you focus on reliability service, what do you do and what don't you do? And where does ERCOT take off and where do you leave? So ERCOT is actually not part of the Eastern Interconnection with which Southwest Power Pool is a part of. Uh, to the west of our footprint is the Western Area Interconnection. And, and then south of, in the southern part of Texas, the, the largest part of Texas, I say the southern, it's not, not exactly the southern half. It is uh, SBP has membership in the panhandle of Texas and a little bit on the southeast side of Texas that is outside of the ERCOT interconnection. And so there are DC ties that connect SPP to ERCOT in Texas. And so we are neighbors with ERCOT. When the power outage hit in mid-February, um, it cascaded quite rapidly, uh, leaving you to de declare the first emergency in SPP history. I think it was 10 a.m. Monday on the 15th of February. Um, and that led to rolling blackouts, controlled service halts, I think is the term you use. Talk us through what happened, and, uh, and then we'll discuss what lessons you think of are the key takeaways. Okay, sure. So on Monday, February 15th, uh, we did have uh, a situation where uh, the amount of energy that we were producing and the amount of energy that we were able to import from our neighbors 
was not enough to cover the load. And there is a variety of reasons for why there was not enough, but the primary reason would be uh, insufficient fuel supplies. And happy to go into more detail on that. When we uh, got to the point that we were having to use our operating reserves uh, in order to cover our load, that's what triggered us getting into that energy e emergency alert level three, which is uh, if you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will have load shed. However, if you continue to uh, not have enough energy to cover the load, then you've got to cut some of the load. And so for a little less than an hour, we cut about 600 megawatts in our footprint. That was about one and a half percent of our load. And that uh, load shed was actually spread across the 14 states. So our members in Texas, again, up in the panhandle of Texas, say the Amarillo area, based on load, their percentage of that 600 megawatt load shed for that 57 minute period. So when we're talking about the power outage, of course, there was bad record, bad winter weather across the whole Midwest during that time frame. Are we talking about a crisis outside of ERCOT that affected SPP and caused, and let's jump in and talk about insufficient fuel. I assume you're talking natural gas. Primarily natural gas. How much of that was coming out? Was it coming out of Texas? Yes, some of it is coming out of Texas. Uh, but there were shortages on the natural gas side. So Southwest Power Pool is, operates as a single balancing authority across all 14 states. So we've got to balance generation and load. And again, we're trying to import as much as we can from our neighbors when our generators uh, fell short due to fuel supply. And so we imported quite a bit of energy from our Eastern neighbors uh, that we have direct transmission uh, paths with primarily the uh, mid-continent independent system operator who was also importing energy from PJM all the way on the East Coast. And so the issues that Southwest Power Pool had were similar to that in ERCOT in, in the case that we had more load than we could supply energy for, but it wasn't nearly as significant as what happened in ERCOT. So our load shed on Monday was for less than an hour and it was one and a half percent of our total load. That's very, very different than what happened in ERCOT. On Tuesday, we had another load shed event that was a little over three hours, and it was only about six and a half percent of our load. So it was more significant than on Monday, uh, but it was still nothing uh, in comparison to the massive amounts of load shed that occurred in, in ERCOT. So as we're, we're trying to figure out what happened here, it seems like it would be helpful to talk about the crisis within ERCOT um, as separate from the crisis within SPP. I'm sitting in Kansas, one of your 14 states, and we had some of those rolling blackouts up in our service territory. Um, is it fair to say that some of the criticism that's been leveled in ERCOT, that they haven't hardened their generation and they hadn't harden their gas transmission infrastructure exists and can, is applicable to the 14 states outside ERCOT that you work with? Well, I, I am going to hesitate a little bit to pontificate on exactly what happened in ERCOT. There are a lot of investigations underway there. Um, for, for Southwest Power Pool, 
we had, and, and first of all, we are doing a comprehensive review now that uh, we'll study all aspects of the operational side. We'll study the financial side. Our market monitor is doing an independent review. We've got our state regulatory commissions uh, looking at looking at this event, and we have a, a review just on communications from operator to operator communications, and of course, all of our public communications as well. And so that I fully expect that review to turn up some recommendations for us. Um, you know, winterization contributed to some of our shortage, but don't really know how much of it. We had um, we had 28,000 uh, megawatts of accredited capacity for gas, you know, of our gas fleet, and only 12,000 of that 28,000 was actually generated. And and the vast majority of that shortage, and that's a tremendous, I mean, that's less than half of our gas units were able to operate due to fuel supply, shortages on, on, natural, on the natural gas side. But even on the coal side, we have 24,000 of accredited capacity, and we were only able to get 16 to 17,000 of that uh, produced. And, I, and, and again, this is going to be fuel supply related, but on the coal side, as I understand it, quite a bit of the issues there would have been winterization, um, coal piles freezing up, as an example. And so, uh, you know. But many of the utilities in your service territory, in your region, are experienced um, with dealing with bad cold winter weather. Correct. Uh, and do have um, processes and technologies in place to mitigate this. Correct. Is there some aspect of coal pile freezing and natural gas pump, pumping that just can't be protected and will be overwhelmed by bad weather? I don't think so. I think that they can be protected. Certainly the gas industry and the electricity industry are interdependent. Um, and so the gas, you know, the production plants for gas require electricity. The, the gas generators require natural gas to produce the electricity. And when gas is unavailable, um, and, 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 and it's also at a record high price, you know, reaching, you know, cap, reaching market caps within our, within our energy market, um, that creates a challenge where the gas plants are not able to secure the, the gas. Now, now, you know, they could, they could possibly have some additional firm contracts for gas, that, that they may not have as much firm contract for it now and have not needed it in the past. But at the end of the day, the gas is gonna be given, the, the first priority for gas is gonna be given to the end use consumers, the, the local distribution companies for gas, who are, you know, people are using gas to heat their homes in the winter and they're not using it so much in the summer. And so our, you know, we're able to produce, you know, the, the entire accredited amount of gas in the summer uh, because we're not competing with anybody else for that natural gas. But you had record use of it in people's homes, which makes it more difficult to acquire uh, for uh, generation unless you had firm contracts in place. But even then, if the shortage is significant enough, then those firm contracts will be cut in order to supply people's individual homes with natural gas. And so, you know, there, there's got to be some coordination, more coordination. There's been quite a bit of coordination between the, the two industries, the natural gas industry and the electric industry. 
but there's more work that's needed and, and, and perhaps even price caps to help protect the, the consumers and the, and the purchasers of gas during these extreme conditions. So I respect your um, disinclination to pontificate, but I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question, and that is, you talk about coordination between gas and electric. What about having ERCOT out there, um, not under the same FERC um, principles that you and the other eight ISOs and RTOs observe? Um, do you think the kinds of problems that affected your area and within Texas, within ERCOT, could be mitigated if uh, ERCOT would cease to be an island unto itself? Yes, I do. I do think it would be, uh, you know, very different had ERCOT been part of the Eastern Interconnection or the Western Connection. The, their inability to import more from their neighbors. Now, keep in mind, we imported a lot, record amounts for us, uh, because we've never needed to import as much as we needed at the time. And ERCOT is limited by those those DC ties that, uh, you know, or just think of them as very small pipes coming in and out of ERCOT. And so, you know, one of the challenges that they had is, is a lack of, uh, capacity that could come in from outside. And the other thing that's interesting and different about ERCOT is ERCOT does not have reserve margin like Southwest Power Pool does. And so they also, I believe, accredited their wind and solar at a higher amount. You know, our, you know, we accredited wind at about uh, 3,500 megawatts or so. We have over 20 gigawatts of wind. Uh, nameplate capacity in our footprint. But we know that during those kinds of conditions, you can't count on wind and, and whether it's because the turbines are freezing up or because the wind is, has laid down. Uh, but the amount that we accredited for wind was met. In fact, it was exceeded. Uh, and so in, in ERCOT, I think they're, they're you know, they, they don't have the, the uh, capacity requirements that we have where you know our load serving entities are required to have 12% additional capacity. And so and that's just another difference that ERCOT does not require of their entities, as I understand it. Right, and perhaps more elemental, they don't have a business signal um, for reliability down there in their energy markets, do they? They don't incent reliability. The, the electricity is sold at the lowest price. Right. They don't have a way of capturing value, I, I don't think, to harden their grid against the kinds of problems that came up in February, do they? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. There are going to be studies, you said, um, underway at SPP, and clearly there are going to be multiple studies within ERCOT. Um, how do you see all this um, work being integrated and um, you learn from them, they learn from you. Is there anybody coordinating this? Is it the Department of Energy? Is FERC? Who's going to try to orchestrate a, a kind of uh, integrated fix to what went wrong in February? I would expect that to fall to NERC. So FERC and NERC have both uh, discussed inquiries and we've, we've begun getting data requests. I believe that's being managed through NERC. 
SPP is we're doing our own review, uh, but you know, I, there's also uh, something else that has been underway at NERC for a while is a, a cold weather standard that has been in development for a while. In fact, there's a manager from Southwest Power Pool that actually is chairing that standards development team, that drafting team that's been working on that standard that would require where they had been maybe suggested in the past, but would require more winterization. Now, um, ERCOT is subject to the NERC reliability standards. And, though, and there has not been a required mandatory standard related to winterization, but there's, there is one coming. I don't, you know, don't know the specifics of it, but it's, it's been in drafting for a while and I believe will, will come through the approval process within the next few months and, and be something that certainly all of our utilities will be required to comply with, but, but ERCOT will as well. Every piece of bad news usually has some good news associated with it. And uh, I think you would agree with me. The degree of public interest and concern about these issues has been heightened. Um, the whole energy complex is going undergoing profound changes. And I assume this is true within SPP of increased uh, development of renewable wind and, and solar. Um, you have... A, 60,000 miles of transmission, um, which to give context would circle the earth seven and a half times. And your territory of 552,000 square miles, it's about double the size of France. What do you think folks living in this area need to know about SPP? What challenges you face and what plans you have under development to deal with these matters I just brought up? Well, certainly we're continuing to look at transmission. We've invested, you know, our member companies have invested $8 billion in transmission upgrades. And if not for that, our situation in February would have been much worse. That robust transmission allowed us to import as much as we did. Now, there are still, there were still areas of congestion that prevented us from maximizing the generation that our Northern states were able to produce because of the congestion in our north to south flows. And so we've got to spend some time looking at that. Um, we've also got to think about from a, a predictive perspective, we've got to look at how we plan for events like this, this, this hundred year polar vortex. You know, we should not assume that it won't happen again for a hundred years. Uh, we should look at you know, opportunities to learn more about uh, climate change and what might be affecting the system such that we're not purely basing our expectations on the past uh, and how things performed in the past and what happened in the past and using the past to predict the future. Now, it's a huge data point, uh, but I think that there are some other areas that, that need to be part of the planning process. If, if we really want to be resilient, we've got to do a better job of predicting, I mean, projecting those kinds of conditions on our system and, and, and being prepared for them and not just uh, giving as much uh, focus on the history, though it is very important to do that. And, you know, there's got to be some additional analysis out there uh, certainly, climate change projections would indicate that these types of extreme weather events may, may 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 happen more frequently. You know, we've never had a situation until 
February 14th and 15th, um, or 15th and 16th rather, we never had a situation where the entire Southwest Power Pool footprint was below zero and was the coldest part of the country. It, and however, we would be naive to think that won't happen again. And so we have to focus on that and we've got to, we've got to really sort of shift our mindset into looking at uh, you know, what the projections are for the future. What kind of, of preparation, uh, assuming what you just said um, is becoming a guiding principle for you, what kind of things are you doing right now to deal with a more rapidly changing climate and possibly more uh, extreme climate? Well, we're really just now starting to look into this. Uh, the EPRI uh, Electric Power Research Institute is beginning to do some studies in this area too. And, and Southwest Power Pool will be very engaged in that and looking at that innovation and, and technology advances, advances to help us with that, but we, you know, right now we're talking about it and, and looking to see where we can get engaged and where we can learn uh, and then how we can use our, you know, integrate uh, more information into our modeling tools, but we aren't, we aren't there yet. What role would energy storage possibly play in effects of a, a multi-day outage? Or is that technology at a place yet where it could play a role or is that down the road? It's really not there yet. Um, I think that it, I definitely believe it has a place and can be a tremendous game changer for the industry, but the technology is not there yet. It, it is coming and, and we've got storage in our, in our generator interconnection queue and uh, usually it's typically paired with solar, but uh, the, the size of the batteries to be able to um, provide the amount of, of energy needed over a sustained period of time is just not there yet. Now, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to use solar, I mean, sorry, storage on a smaller scale uh, for, you know, perhaps for emergency situations that are not, uh, you know, hundreds of megawatts and uh, do not last for, you know, hours at a time. I think, I do think that there is an opportunity there, but the technology is not not to the level yet that that we can really uh, factor it into our reliability. So here's a little pushback on that, which is your experience on the 15th and 16th, where you said you had minimal disruptions. They were rolling, they were a few hours maybe at a locale. It seems like that would be ideal where a hospital or a police station um, might have a battery unit outside and would, would have come through unscathed. At a consumer level, I 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. As as an opportunity for backup generation, but on the scale of providing, you know, hundreds of megawatts, I don't I don't see it. At least not not in the near future. In the in the you know in the five to ten years down the road, absolutely. So historically, SPP and 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 entities like it have been very macro. Um, do you think it might be the time to start getting more granular and micro and, and bringing these kinds of solutions within your territory? Or is that something the utilities have to do? Uh, no, I, there are opportunities. You know, the markets are evolving. Um, FERC is looking for opportunities for uh, more uh, entity, entities to be able to, a smaller, um, behind the meter generation, to be able to offer those 
those that generation into the energy market. And so there are, I mean, there is definitely work underway to integrate it. It just that the existence of it, you know, right now is not enough that that we can use it as a accredited capacity, for example. Barbara, uh, before you took the helm of SPP about a little over a year ago, you were senior vice president of IT and IT and chief security officer. Tell me from that perspective what your take is on threats of um, grid insecurities from bad actors in foreign countries. As you see it at SPP, do you see more kinds of incursions and how are you hardening your your system? So I actually haven't been CEO for quite one year yet. I've actually got two more weeks to go and I'm wondering what else can what else can happen to be very unique in my first year of of uh, at the helm. Uh, but also I was reminded of something that you said earlier about, um, I, I was reminded of a, of a testimony I gave in uh, DC several years ago on cybersecurity in the electric utility industry. And I mentioned that, you know, one person, you know, one, one entity's detection is, is everyone else's prevention. You know, one entity that's, you know, has an issue becomes an opportunity for everybody else to learn and grow and protect and prevent things from occurring. Now, the cybersecurity standards, critical infrastructure protection standards go along that are, are mandatorily required uh, throughout our industry uh, require quite a bit of cybersecurity protection uh, and separation of our most critical assets from, let's say, our, our corporate systems. And so, uh, you know, cybersecurity is, is taken very, very seriously in our industry, and certainly at Southwest PowerPool. I, I really enjoyed that job. Of course, my, my entire career has been in IT until uh, moving into this role as CEO. Having said all that, that, there is no amount of defense in place to guarantee you protection from a cyber breach. And the bad actors are are uh, changing and evolving and, and growing in number. Um, and, you know, it just, you know, we've said for years, it's not if, but when, it, you know, it is definitely very much our, still our number one corporate threat and our corporate risk rather that we are managing as best we can and, and looking at cybersecurity maturity and, and um, there are cyber mutual assistance programs that, that SPP is a part of. We're a part of the, uh, the CRISP program that allows us to, to share and have, have all constant monitoring of, of the traffic that's coming in and out of our, in and out of our network. And so uh, cybersecurity, it, it never sleeps and the bad guy only has to be right once. Is there any overlap between the massive shift you're going to have to do to deal with weather, uh, more violent weather, and the threat of cybersecurity breaches where strategies you take on one front would help you on the other front? That's a great question. Uh, there probably are some. Um, hadn't hadn't really give that, given that much thought. You know, one of the concerns during these weather events is that uh, if you if the, if you take your focus off of cybersecurity because you're so concerned about reliability that you could potentially let your guard down, and we certainly can't let you know can't let something like that happen. Was there an uptick of uh, cyber threats on February 15th and 16th? Not that I'm aware of. 
Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. No. Well, I, I would think one possible area of overlap would be what we were talking about a few moments ago, which is to the extent that customers at mission critical uh, points, like police and fire stations and hospitals, if they get more robust with microgrids and storage, that helps everybody deal with both risks. I would think it does. It does, and and you know they've got to be uh, as protected. Um, with from a cybersecurity perspective, because they can also be a threat, right? They, um, you know, a, a, a breach among, um, you know, an end-use consumer that has perhaps a generation in the form of battery storage or solar farm or you know whatever it may be that they that they're offering into our our energy market. Uh, the the risk of that infrastructure not being as well protected creates a risk for us. And so we have to consider how the, the at least this, at, at a minimum, how the critical infrastructure protection standards would apply to these types of behind the meter, what we call behind the meter generation. These assets that are, that are smaller uh, can be just as risky to us if, you know, integrated with our systems, if they don't have the same cybersecurity protections in place. And so we've got to be sure that we consider that as well. Well, thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much for the interview. I enjoyed it. We've been talking with Barbara Sugg, who's the president and CEO of, for almost a year now of the Southwest Power Pool, sharing her insights about changes in the industry in her uh, bailiwick and uh, beyond. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrel.gov. We encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information about the podcast series or to subscribe, please visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.